This is the Bell Books and Stories podcast with me, Richard Dijkstra. Welcome. You're listening to the Bell Media Podcast, where we take a look at some great books and the stories behind the books. In this episode, I'm speaking to best-selling author John Preston. John is a former arts editor of the Evening Standard and the Sunday Telegraph. He's possibly best known for his last book, A Very English Scandal, that told the story of the Jeremy Thorpe affair of the mid-1970s, and was, of course, made into a very successful award-winning TV series starring Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw. Another of his books, The Dig, recounts the story behind the discovery of an Anglo-Saxon burial ship and associated treasures at Sutton Hoo in the summer of 1939, just before the outbreak of war. It's a find that has been described as probably the most impressive medieval grave discovery anywhere in Europe. A film based on the book, starring Ray Fiennes and Carrie Mulligan, was released recently on Netflix and is already tipped for awards. But he's here today to talk about his latest project, just published, Fall, The Mystery of Robert Maxwell. It's described as the jaw-dropping life story of notorious business tycoon Robert Maxwell. Welcome, John. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, it really is an incredible story. So, you know, it's war hero, sometimes spy, MP, associate of world leaders, successful businessman, media mogul, but ultimately a crook. I suspect most of our listeners have some knowledge of Robert Maxwell. But of course, it's actually about 30 years, in fact, 30 years this November, since the events that are the climax to your book. So perhaps it might be worth you just sketching out a little of Maxwell's background for those not quite so familiar with the story. Yes, of course. I mean, one of the extraordinary things about Robert Maxwell is that it's hard to think of anyone really in the 20th century who journeyed as far from his origins as Maxwell did. He was born and brought up in a dirt poor town in the west of what was then Czechoslovakia. Town had a large Jewish population. Maxwell's family was Jewish. Um, He left home aged about 15 to go and seek his fame and fortune. Three of his siblings, both his parents and his grandfather all died in Auschwitz. And that's really the kind of prism that you have to look at Maxwell's life through. However badly he behaved in later life, there was this terrible tragedy pretty much at the start of his life. And although, as I said, Maxwell did journey an enormously long physical distance and social distance from his upbringing, the older and the richer he became, It was as if the past seemed to kind of dog his footsteps, almost mocking him for what he'd achieved. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting that you should say that. So, I mean, in in terms of where he came from, that it seems that the war had both this issue about what happened to his family, but also it seemed to be the spring for his, his whole business career. Yes. I mean, that's that's certainly true. Maxwell came to England during the war. He changed his name four times by the time he was 23. And he chose the name Robert Maxwell, I think because it sounded quite like the sound uh, being vaguely Scottish and it didn't have any Jewish connotations. And he was extremely worried with some reason about anti-Semitism. And as a young man, Maxwell had dreamt of finding this commodity that would be in great demand after the war, which he could get for next to nothing. 
And one day in 1946, he was in Berlin. He was running an allied newspaper and a man came in and said that he was the largest publisher of scientific journals in Germany. And could Maxwell help him? And Maxwell said no and was about to kick him out because that was basically what he said to everybody. And then he kind of got interested and he asked the man to explain a bit more. And the man said that during the war, no scientific journals had been published. So he had a vast stockpile of stuff. And was Maxwell interested in doing something with it? And Maxwell basically realized that the commodity he'd been looking for all this time was knowledge. So he got all these scientific journals, translated them, sold them to libraries all over the world, and that became the cornerstone of his publishing empire. Right. And the reason why he was in that position in Berlin was what, because he was working with British intelligence or what was it? Yes. I mean, you know, Maxwell had an astonishing facility for languages and Berlin was at that time divided up into four zones. There was the, uh, the British, the Russian, the American and the French. Maxwell was one of the very few people who could move from zone to zone and pass himself off as a native wherever he was. So he was an enormous asset to British intelligence. So he did spy for them. And indeed, they actually set him up in business when he got this great cache of scientific journals over to London. It's interesting that actually the relationship with Maxwell and post-war military intelligence was quite incredible, that it seemed that they saw something in him that they just couldn't, in a way, help but decide that they ought to you know, help finance or even it looked as though they were in some situations that the connections that he had from his old military intelligence time then allowed him to raise money in the city. Is that right? Yes. I mean, what you have to remember is that Maxwell was one of the very, very few Western businessmen doing business behind the Iron Curtain, as it were, and indeed, particularly in Russia. So, you know, he was going back and forth. And I think he was very useful in that respect um, because he loved to be basically be the kind of conduit uh, through which information would pass. Um, and at what point he stopped being a fully paid, a paid up member of British intelligence is not entirely clear. I think he probably did carry on doing stuff for them on, as it were, a freelance basis throughout the 1950s, possibly beyond. Yeah, and I suppose it's one of these things that you're never very sure whether he's doing the spying or whether he's being fed things that the UK perhaps is trying to put into the Russian view of uh, the world or something like that. Yeah, and I think the, I think the older Maxwell became and the more successful he became. I mean, in many respects, Maxwell was far too much of an egomaniac to be a good spy. He had no real capacity for keeping secrets. Um, so, <laughs> you know, they possibly realized after a bit that he may well have been more of a liability than anything else. Right. I mean, one of the things which comes through, I think, in the book, as far as I'm concerned, is that you do seem to have a degree of sympathy with uh, him as a, as a character. But, but as you go through the story, and clearly, you know, that it all ends terribly, really, and a lot of people uh, affected by the fallout from it all. I mean, did you find yourself becoming more sympathetic or less as you sort of delve into the story? Well, it's a difficult question. I mean, I, from the word go, I didn't want to judge him. I mean, of course, I realized that, you know, you're an author, you can't be completely objective. But I didn't, it seemed to me so many people had kind of uh, pointed accusing fingers at Maxwell, often with ample reason. There was just 
not much point joining their ranks. I really just wanted to try to understand him. And although in many, many respects, he was an ogre, he was a fascinating and in many ways, really a tragic figure. And the older he became, the more the tragedy engulfed him. Um, I mean, one of the things then, obviously, is that in terms of business, he, he had a very large family, but really only two of the family, I think, were really actively involved. Is that right? Did yeah. you have much cooperation with them? That's uh, Ian and Kevin. Well, Kevin, none at all. Ian, I've known for years. I mean, Ian and I were actually at school together. Um, <laughs> right. And I... I've seen him sporadically, but, you know, fairly regularly over the years. And I said to him when I was thinking of doing the book, you know, would he consider contributing? And I did make the point that I couldn't change people's perception of his father, nor did I particularly want to. But what I would try and do was humanize him. And I, and I hope that I have done that. And in the wake of his death, I mean, Maxwell, 30 years on, is still regarded, if people regard him at all, as the kind of embodiment of corporate villainy. And it seemed to me that so much kind of black paint had been tipped over him that he turned into a kind of pantomime villain. And I just wanted to look at his, his nuances and his contradictions. And as I say, just try to make sense of him as a human being. Yes, I mean, one of the things which seemed to be a kind of key driver of his story was this obsession, really, with trying to compete with murder. Yes, I mean, you know, they were engaged in this extraordinary wrestling match for almost 30 years. And I think as far as Murdoch was concerned, Maxwell was just this kind of perpetual irritant that he could never quite manage to shrug off. And it infuriated Murdoch that uh, his name and Maxwell's were always being mentioned in the same breath. And also the fact they shared the same initials kind of rubbed it in even more. But Maxwell, who kind of lost every round against Murdoch, became more and more obsessed by him and came to regard him as his nemesis, really. And indeed, it was in seeking to prove that he could go toe to toe with, uh, with Murdoch that Maxwell's set in train this chain of events that that led to everything falling apart his you know his business falling apart and him falling apart as a man yeah so as far as i understand it obviously they had some meetings before but the real issue was that uh, maxwell always wanted to own a newspaper but murdoch seemed to beat him each time that there was the news of the world and then there was the sun and there was the, the times that uh, each time he seemed to be outsmarted either by Murdoch or possibly by the shareholders of the selling organisation. Yeah, the irony also is, is that they were both of them, to some extent, outsiders. And Maxwell became convinced that the establishment was out to get him and that they he would never be allowed to join their ranks. And he was right. But so what made it even more galling for him was that Murdoch, another outsider, was after a while warmly embraced by the same people that Maxwell had been trying to impress and ingratiate himself with. 
Right, okay. I mean, one of the things that I realized when I started to go through all this was I was trying to place sort of events in history and things. And I, I suddenly realized that actually that he did succeed for a very short time in getting involved in a newspaper, a national newspaper, but only from a Scottish point of view. That yes. He was involved with the Scottish Daily News, the kind yeah, of absolutely. workers' buyout or whatever in 1975. Yeah. I was, I was a student at the time, and actually I was involved with the student broadcasting, and we actually covered that at one time. I have to say I didn't get an interview with uh, Maxwell. I was <laughs> one of the, uh, the, the people that was involved in the committee. I mean, in some respects, Maxwell kind of paved the way for what happened with Rupert Murdoch and whopping and breaking the stranglehold of the unions, um, because Maxwell, when he took over the Mirror in 84, did make it much more profitable and he he basically imposed himself on the unions and forced through redundancies and just possibly Murdoch might have kind of sat up and thought hold on well if he's done it I can do it times about you know 150 which is what he then did. I mean it was interesting that that purchase of the mirror was what in 84 yeah, uh, and uh, he seemed to pay what seemed to me certainly a large amount for what was not necessarily a particularly profitable uh, business at the time. But do you think that was the, the peak of the empire? Maxwell buying the Mirror was a very, very good deal for him because, along with all the, the various titles, he got a lot of property, prime London property, and indeed the property itself was probably worth as much as the actual papers. The point where the rot really starts to set in, as far as Maxwell is concerned, is four years later in 1988, he buys for just ludicrous amount of money the American publishers Macmillan, and everybody implored him not to do it. And indeed, he ended up paying a billion dollars more than the company's own directors thought it was worth. And the reason he did it was essentially because he wanted to take on Murdoch in what had become Murdoch's backyard, you know, New York. Yeah, I have to be successful in America, yes. Yeah, and, and the trouble is, you know, having forked out this vast amount of money and put himself terribly in debt by doing so, then there was a recession, interest rates soared. So from that moment on, he was frantically, as it were, robbing Peter to pay Paul to try and keep the empire afloat. I mean, that's one of the things I uh, realised when looking back in this all, that, you know, interest rates were easily, you know, base rate was 10%, never mind yeah, anything else. Exactly. Uh, and whereas, you know, we've, for the last, what, 10 years here, we've been used to situations where base rate is under 1%. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. A very different commercial environment. Yes, and of course, and, and Murdoch himself was in deep trouble at around the same time. I mean, this is a simplification, but Murdoch essentially went to the banks opened up his books and said, I'm in trouble, but I think I can get out of it. Here's the situation. And the banks helped him. But the problem with Maxwell was he could never open up his books <laughs> to the banks because he'd already been engaged in, you know, what might loosely term extremely creative accountancy. So he was stuffed. Yes, right. As you know, that uh, I was involved uh, to some extent as well with the Maxwell organization, but mm. on, the, on the private side, on the cable and satellite TV side. 
Now, you know, for understandable reasons, you don't really get involved too much in that because you know, most people understand the issues to do with the newspapers and things like that. But actually, in some of the things there, he uh, was kind of going toe-to-toe with Murdoch, you could argue, and actually, at the time, probably ended up coming out the better of it in a way because he, mm. he brought you know, MTV to Europe. Yep. Yeah, and I was involved on the other side of that at the time because it was also a kind of tripartite thing between BT, because it was involved in the early stages of cable and satellite TV, uh, Viacom, who owned MTV, and and Maxwell, and ultimately Maxwell sold his interests back to Viacom for what was actually a very substantial return. Yes, and and Maxwell, you know, one has to remember, in many respects, was a brilliant businessman. I mean, let's just say hypothetically Maxwell had dropped dead in, say, 1960. He would have been remembered as not only the world's largest publisher of scientific journals, but someone who had given scientists a platform to disseminate their views and in doing so paved the way for a lot of very significant discoveries in medicine, chemistry, biology and so on. So, I mean, there, there is another side to Maxwell other than the kind of corporate villainy side. Uh, I mean, also what I would say is that having come from from my background into the organisation, uh, I had worked, say, with BT, and also I'd been involved in working out in Hong Kong with a joint venture out there with the the Hutchison Group, which is controlled mm-hmm. by by Li Ka-shing, one of the richest Chinese entrepreneurs. And what really struck me was going into the Maxwell organization, how completely unstructured it seemed to be. Mm. That, you know, this was at the, the last, well, it was, I was there for, I suppose, just under two years at, and there when the whole thing collapsed. But there seemed to be no ability for anybody to get logical decisions made because everything had to go through him. Yeah, I'm sure that, um, yes. You know, partly, as we now understand it, was because he was spinning the plates. But partly, I suspect, it was also his kind of character was he had to be responsible for everything. And he was profoundly mistrustful of other people, their abilities, their motives. Um, So, yes, the only way he could feel safe was by doing everything himself. But, of course, it got to the point where it was just simply impossible. One of the things that you start the book with is really his attempt to buy the New York Daily News which was mm-hmm. really right at the end of things. Could you ever actually work out why he was trying to do that? I mean, it seemed to me that it, it was kind of the last thing you would do in that situation. I think that by that stage, he, he kind of couldn't stop buying things. And you have this sense of him frantically reaching for this kind of indefinable something that's going to give him the satisfaction that he's always craved. And of course, he never quite gets there. But a more kind of, on a more sort of prosaic basis, Maxwell thought when he bought Macmillan's in uh, 88, that it was going to give him huge public profile in America. But actually, it didn't really. I mean, it was a big company and, you know, he was known in publishing as a big cheese. But outside that, people simply hadn't heard of him. Buying the New York Daily News 
was a much, much more high profile thing. I mean, you were kind of the uncrowned king of New York if you bought the New York Daily because it was such a popular tabloid. And indeed, when he did buy it, you know, there was after this long, bitter strike, uh, you know, there's extraordinary scenes. People start dancing in the street. And, you know, that that the night that he's announced um, as be, being the, the new um, new owner, he goes into the most fashionable Chinese restaurant in Manhattan, and all the diners stand up and give him an ovation. I mean, you know, it's really amazing stuff. So uh, he kind of got the veneration and respect that he had always wanted. The trouble is by then, the cracks had widened to such a degree that it was kind of only going to end one way. Right. And also the, the business itself wasn't really going to deliver in terms of financially, I think you said well, that certainly. circulation yeah. was yeah. slipping. I thought it was interesting. You also said that Donald Trump at one stage, a couple of years earlier, had actually tried to buy it as well. Yeah. And I mean, in many respects, Maxwell was a kind of forerunner of Trump in terms of that crazed self-aggrandizement. I mean, you know, Maxwell called his headquarters Maxwell House. Uh, you know, the carpets on the floor had huge letter M's kind of specially woven into them. Yeah, and, and Trump had also seen, had tried to buy the New York um, Daily News as a sort of launch pad for his political career. But in fact, he hadn't been able to. And indeed, he didn't actually have the money at the time. Um, and so, yes, I think Trump was at that stage rather in awe of Maxwell and saw him possibly as representing something that Trump himself aspired to. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Perhaps I shouldn't go too far uh, exploring that. But I mean, I, one of the other things I think is, of course, interesting in the way that Maxwell seemed to behave was this inability to actually see separate bits of his business. That there seemed to be this idea that it, it was all just one thing, despite the fact that he had two public companies and a whole host of private companies seem to quite happily duck and dive between them in terms of finances and things like this. Well, I mean, what he wanted was, you know, smoke screens behind which he could hide uh, whatever he was up to. And that was one way of doing it, which is kind of blurring the line between the public side and the private side. And then on the very rare, rare occasions, people that ever doubted that uh, Maxwell you know, had quite as much money as he claimed to have. He would always say, well, look, I, you know, I've got billions salted away in Liechtenstein. And Liechtenstein, as you know, is a, is a tax haven. And, you know, nobody has access to any of the, the information about the money you may or may not have stashed there. So, I mean, essentially, they took him at his word. And as it turned out, there had been money in Liechtenstein, but it had all gone by the time that Maxwell went overboard in November 1991. Right. I mean, another side of him is this issue about him being able to talk with world leaders and things like this. You do also see the, the whole kind of collapse of the Soviet Union mm. uh, was happening, obviously, at the, the end of the 80s. But he seemed to be very well connected with all these Eastern European prime ministers and presidents and things like this. And there's kind of a fascinating political dynamic in there. Yeah, he published in the 70s and 80s, he published a book, a series of 
extraordinarily laudatory books about various um, hardline communist leaders, praising them for their you know, vision and um, humanitarian deeds, which of course they loved. Uh, and as far as Maxwell was doing, it was just a kind of exercise in buttering them up so that he would um, be given more access to their markets. But, you know, as we discussed before, he did, you know, he was one of the very, very few people who would shuttle back and forth between you know, Eastern European leaders, Mrs. Thatcher was then the prime minister, her successor, John Major. Um, he was a very, very useful figure as far as they were concerned, um, because it flattered Maxwell's unquenchable vanity for him to pass these kind of tidbits of information back and forth. And he, you know, he was a useful figure at a time when, you know, there really were not many, many channels open. He controlled quite a few of them. Yes, right. I mean, one of the things which I thought was interesting was this Maxwell-Gorbachev uh, initiative. that uh, seemed to be set up with great fanfare and really never seemed to go anywhere. Uh, Maxwell had got kind of history in that respect because he'd famously bailed out the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh in, I seem to remember, it was something like 86. And so he would promise enormous sums of money and would get the resultant publicity. Um, and, you know, everyone would write, oh, you know, Maxwell, you know, jumped in to save the day yet again. But mysteriously, the money would never materialise, or, you know, a lot less would materialise. Yes, I remember actually the people telling me that they had all been given souvenir Commonwealth Games presentation packs, mm. people working for, for Maxwell at the time. And the presentation packs included a £2 coin. Yes. And every one of them had the £2 coin removed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there you are. And, um, and so, yes, the Gorbachev-Maxwell was going to be a um, great initiative in, um, uh, in America. And, um, and Gorbachev was very flattered by it. Maxwell had pledged, you know, gazillions of dollars. But in the event, nothing came through. And by then, but of course, by then, there was a lot less left in the pot than there had been. Uh, talking about, of course, of what was left in the pot, a lot of it uh, that eventually was keeping things going at the end uh, was the money in the pension schemes. Yeah. Now, again, I have to uh, declare an interest here that I am actually a member of one of the Maxwell schemes that was never really uh, sorted out and actually spent quite a bit of my time over the right. years as the kind of youngest member of that particular scheme uh, trying to lobby on behalf of the pensioners uh, but not getting too far, getting a lot of sympathy from MPs and lawyers but having no real political traction in the thing and that the government themselves obviously trying to kind of distance themselves from any responsibility. But one of the things that actually you know, struck me with all, all of that is how much was going on there that the city must have known a little bit about? Yeah, absolutely. And the, but, you know, they chose to look the other way. And um, in many respects, you know, they were as culpable as Maxwell. Yeah, I mean, they, they certainly deserved one another. Uh, the, you know, and this was, of course, no con consolation to mirror pensioners. But I, I think it's worth pointing out that Maxwell 
wasn't actually wasn't a kind of Bernie Madoff figure who was solely interested in lining his own pockets. Uh, he'd taken money out of the Mirror Pension Funds before and paid it back. And actually, the legality of it was much more kind of fuzzy then than you might think. I strongly suspect that if he'd been in a position to do so, he would have paid the money back again. But of course, by then he wasn't. I mean, certainly one of the things that, again, you go back to this intelligence uh, issue, that it was interesting that after the collapse, they uh, brought on board a guy called Sir John Cuckney. Yes. Who was responsible for organizing uh, sort of compromises in terms of yes. various legal issues that were brought between the pension trustees and banks and things like this. But Sir John Cuckney came from uh, an MI5 background, didn't he? Then? Yes, that's true. Actually, you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah, it is one of those, you know, you always feel with Maxwell that there were constantly kind of shadow, shadowy figures behind a curtain. And, you know, it's very hard to work out exactly what Maxwell's links to Western intelligence were, because, you know, inevitably they're under wraps. Um, we know that he spied for the Czechs during the 1950s. He liked to keep up connections with his old chums in British intelligence. And, you know, as I say, he was addicted to kind of myth making and it was all it all fed into, you know, these kind of uh, stories, some tall, some slightly less tall that he spun about himself. Um, just to conclude uh, on things, are there any kind of stories that you just didn't have room to include, but you would really uh, like to? I mean, one of the ones I liked was just the reference to the fact that one of his early business partners was responsible for the fact that all the Chinese in the 50s and the 60s were all dressed in um, in blue denim because they had misunderstood the order that they were asked for for indigo. What's weird about this book in a way is that when I wrote A Very English Scandal, I remember I would periodically find myself snorting with disbelief at various things that I'd turned up. And actually much the same thing happened with Maxwell. Because, of course, you know, in one sense, he's like a kind of character from a comic opera. But there is this much, much, yes, tragic, but kind of sinister side to him as well. So, you know, I just wanted, as far as it was possible, to give as kind of rounded a portrait of him as possible. I can't think of any particular stories that I left out. If, I, if they'd been that good, I probably wouldn't have left them out, is the short answer. Okay, well, I say I would certainly say that it's been great talking to you, and it really is uh, a fascinating subject uh, and a great read. Great, thank you very much. The Fall is out now, published by Viking. John, thank you so much for being my guest on Books and Stories. Thanks a lot. Bye. And thank you for listening. Studio production was by Perrin Sledge, and I'm Richard Dijkstra. There are lots of interesting podcasts in the Bell Books and Stories series whether it's Kay talking to Helen Lederer about her book Losing It and her Comedy Women in Publishing Awards, or my conversation with Sue Flood. She's recently been announced as the winner of the Royal Photographic Society's Science Photographer of the Year Award in the Climate Change category, and she's talking to me about her beautiful book Emperor the Perfect Penguin, about her career, and how as someone from a small Welsh village, she managed to fulfil her girlhood ambition about working with David Attenborough. 
Hope you'll find time for a listen. And please also join us next time when Kay is exploring the role of the literary scout and how books end up on screen. Then again, John, you've probably got a few insights there too. In the meantime, bye for now.